Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Ted St. John. Ted is the Director of Operations from First Step Recovery, a detox and treatment center in Warren, Ohio. Ted, welcome. Thanks for having me. Really, it's great to meet you. Thank you. And it's great to be here. So, um, Ted, I want to start off by just asking you to tell your story. You are an addict in recovery. Correct. For quite some time. So, tell us your story. Well, Greg, I... um I think usually when I tell my story, I start with my trip to detox for the first and only time so far. Um, Your first and only time, no relapse. I, yeah. Um, and my sponsor, that was one of the first things he taught me was to finish all my sentences with yet. I can tell you I was almost 40 years old. Um, I was in alcohol rehab, as, as weird as it may sound, in South Korea when I was 18 years old. Um, I had three alcohol related incidences within my first three months of being there and they put me into not necessarily a treatment center, but kind of a class in the military. That meant that I was found in a blackout state causing being disruptive on some level. And when that pattern formed, their policy was, well, then we're going to intervene and we're going to put you in this class and we're going to take your gun and we're going to take your badge. And we're, cause I was a cop in the military at 18. And you're going to sit tight here for a minute and you're going to talk to us and tell us what's going on. And you're going to listen to us and you're going to follow our instruction. And I kept hearing the term denial after a few classes that I was experiencing denial of my problem. And all I can tell you is I wasn't in denial. I was in refusal. (laughs) In other words, if I admitted to you that the first time I used at 12 years old, um, that the first I, time you used was 12 years old, yeah, used alcohol. Black, we're talking about. Blackout drunk alcohol. Okay. First time. And and most times after that, I got better at not blacking out, at least through my 20s. Um, I was like a functional shell. I would drink and at some point in the evening, I would lose consciousness <laughs> of self and still be functioning. Um, and that was a pattern. So that's where drug use began because I experienced so many severe consequences with alcohol, so directly being confronted regularly with my alcohol use that I began to supplement with drug use 
to combat the effects that I was having with alcohol. It was less detectable and I had less consequences. That's how the drug use developed. Was anyone there to protect you from the consequences back way back when or no? Sure. Um, My mother was there and my father wasn't. And she felt on some level, some type of blame um, to him for not being there and some type of um, way to protect me because, oh, well, if he had a father, if I could have provided him a father, then he wouldn't be not, like this. Yeah, it's not your fault. It's your dad's right, fault. Right. So she dad had to protect left. me because it wasn't my fault that I was reacting and coping this way Yeah, or trying to. Okay. Take us next. Um, as I said, I, um, I became a daily pot smoker and I had my circle of friends that were, that they shared those same values and that's what we did. And How old were you then? Well, I mean, I started, I was smoking weed daily before I went into the military. I didn't smoke weed while I was in the military. And when I was honorably discharged from the military, the reason that I left the military was because I wanted to use drugs and I didn't want to the severe consequences of a military police person getting more alcohol-related incidences and being discharged dishonorably. Um, So it was too much risk. I had too much exposure. I couldn't control it for long. What I can say is what it was like for me to fix, manage, or control this progressive addiction, uh, what it was like for me in my teens, what it became for me in my 20s, and the, the lack, the impossibility of controlling it in my 30s, that progressive nature of this disease, which I heard for the first time at my first meeting at almost 40 years old, was that this disease is progressive, incurable, and fatal. And I never thought I would die. I was way too arrogant for that. Um, I didn't even conceive it of as a disease, so incurable meant nothing to me. But the progressive nature of this disease at 40 almost um, really resonated with me because I was able to take my experience and realize that this thing has progressed to a point that I never thought it would progress to. It took a long time to do that because opiates, I never tried them until I was 33. But the first day I tried them at 33, I didn't stop using them until I was almost 40 years old. Um, so I had a six year run and I used methadone and suboxone in between that all said, I was on paper, very functional mm-hmm. and I was quite successful for a kid that really didn't, nobody had any expectations of. Wow. And what I, was your drug of choice at that time? At the end, mm-hmm. it was, uh, Oxycontin and Xanax and Ambien and it was about $200 a day. And it was um, unmanageable to the point where it wasn't even working for the last year or so. I was just trying not to be sick. You were just on maintenance. Well, right. And I was I was selling steel. I sold steel for nine years. And I was making a six-figure income for the last five of those nine years. And I was living as if I was making $35,000 a year because I was barely paying my bills. So what happened to make you finally say, okay, that's it, and throw in all the cards? Well, my dad was homeless when I was about 10, and he remained homeless till I was about 24 when he got hit by a car that put him in a nursing home. He was an addict like me. His father, when he was about 10, left to get milk, and he didn't see him for another 10 years. So coming up, it's real easy when you got a mom and a sister saying, you're Ted, you're going to be the one to break the cycle of this nonsense that's gone on with these fathers in the St. John family. And I was fully prepared and willing and wanting to do that for these two ladies. And it just got worse and worse for me. And all I wanted was them to see that I was okay and I was progressively getting worse. 
Um, I was diagnosed with major depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder. I was going to doctors for that, and I was abusing the medication that they gave me for it. I would snort the whole script in three days, and then I'd look for more on the street. Um, and at the same time, I was snorting $200 worth of Oxycontin. And I couldn't get rid of the guilt, the shame, and the remorse. I couldn't even get high. I was just basically getting 20-minute jolts and then doing it again in an hour. I was doing it all day at work, functioning, two Cadillacs, a nice house, a family. And I was sitting up at night watching my two and three and four-year-old daughter. I have one daughter, but through those ranges of her ages, I was, I just remember standing in her room watching her sleep in the middle of the night when everybody was asleep and wanted to kill myself. And I had a gun and I had it with me every night. And I slept on top of this gun. Why? It was a combination of paranoia and depression. Just wanting to be close to it. Just wanting to live in that sickness. Just wanting when nobody was around, when nobody was looking, because I was up during the day. And I was moving and I was making things happen enough to make it happen. You know, the ways and the means of getting more. And in my case, I could go to a debit machine and get more. My work thought that I was, um, because I'm also diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I learned about that when I was 28. Um, I was a competitive bodybuilder through my 20s. And I was an alcohol, weed smoker, coke binger. Um, and I was able to function at a high level. I owned a tr uh, health club in Beechwood for, for in the 90s. And I was local boy done good. And I progressively got to the point where I was empty inside. I felt nothing. I couldn't make an agreement with anyone. So what happened to cause me to go into treatment um, was if I didn't try something, even though I had no faith in the fact that it would work. If anything, I was hoping it would lower my tolerance to where I didn't have to spend as much because really part of the motivation for me to make money was so that I wouldn't have a drug problem. If I could afford it and it didn't impact me financially, then it shouldn't be a problem. Um, but when I'm suicidal and I'm telling doctors about it for the last two years of my addiction, well, of course I was suicidal. Of course I had depression. Of course I had anxiety. Of course I had a sleep problem because I was turning myself and turning myself off and on for the last 20 years. So I had some physical problems that caused an emotional state. Um, and ultimately what I learned in the program was I had a spiritual problem and I had no idea about it. I was agnostic coming into the program and I'm still agnostic. Before I left treatment, I prayed for the first time in easily over 15 years because I was done doing that. I was pure self-will, and I made it. Were you raised with any religion? Yeah, absolutely, what which religion? was part of my I Christianity. I went yeah. to a Christian Bible church uh, as yeah. a kid, mm -hmm. and at some point around 12 or 13, ironically enough, the same time I started using, mm -hmm. I started to see serious conflict with that because I felt too hypocritical to ask God for anything because I had lied to him so many times. What I can tell you is that as I mentioned to you before we started, when you asked me how long, you mm -hmm. know, my recovery has been, um, I can tell you that I prayed for the first time in over 15 years on day four in detox. I prayed in that room and I asked God to help me not use. So obviously spirituality has been very, it's been instrumental in it's your been, recovery. It's been the, the, the glue. Yeah. So can you name a couple of other things that have been keys to your recovery? Well, 
I can tell you that um, personal responsibilities, learning how to accept those. Um, because before I went into treatment, the only reason I went into treatment because I had a four-year-old daughter that I didn't want to fall down in front of. So, so physically and figuratively, essentially my ego and the way I viewed my father and the way I viewed my father's father with all this judgment. Um, in other words, she was coming to an age where she, she started to notice some things about me being sick all the time and me when I was 20 minutes later on top of the world. Hmm. Um, and I didn't want her to view me the way I viewed my father. And that's what I saw happening in, a, in short time. So it sent me to treatment. When I came out of treatment, I, they gave me tools. And probably the, the one that helped me the most, the earliest, there's two. One was people, places, and things. That I had to be willing to, to review those people, places, and things decisions with somebody else. And I chose to do that with my sponsor. Um, so he would help me how how to interact with the friends that I had coming into recovery and how to address those problems today. Um, and then also um, play the tape all the way through. That one still always. What does that mean? Play the tape all the way through. Well, it means I'm going, I'm in early recovery. I may have 15 days or I may have 15 months, but I'm an addict. My brain still thinks the same way that they, what they call first thought wrong. And I'm going to have my first thought. If I work my program well enough, if I become, if I train it well enough, I'll have a second thought and it'll be a program thought. So in other words, I'm an addict. So if I expect that I'm in a good place today and I should never, I've, I've reached this place and I should never have a thought of using again, that's unrealistic. Uh, of course I'm going to want to use. This is how still, seven and a half years down. Absolutely. The road, you, you still have the, that desire. If to I believed I could use successfully, I'd use today, but I've had to accept that I, I've proven to myself that this person cannot use any mood or mind altering drugs successfully. Um, because it doesn't mean that today will be spoiled. It doesn't mean that, ne that I couldn't pull it off on some level for a month or two, but I'm going to have to pay the same price and it might even be more severe this time. I know that's true. So of course I want to use at some point. Of course I have, I'm going to have thoughts of using. Okay. Here's the difference. NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous, which mm -hmm. is the program that I chose that I've been in now since the beginning. And I have an NA sponsor, uh, gave me one promise. The program gives me one promise that an addict, any addict can stop using lose the desire to use, and find a new way to live. For me, the only one I wanted in there, if I'm going to try this and go through this pain, is that desire, lose the desire to use. Is that even possible? I mean, I knew addicts, I, or I knew alcoholics stopped drinking, but I never knew one drug addict. I never was exposed to one drug addict that ever was a late-stage addict like me, that ever used the way I used and wasn't using. So, Ted, your recovery has really been probably the best training that you could possibly have for your career today. Tell us about how you've been, you've leveraged that well, and what you're doing today. Thank you. I, um, it does feel like my skill set when it comes to having a career of um, entrepreneurial in business and my recovery sort of gave me a skill set that sort of made sense because having gone through that period, um, it sort of gives me, I think we have to have a mix of both business, clinical, and recovery, a good blend. Um, 
in order to really be well-rounded. Now that said, I got to tell you, I don't know anything because that's really the collaborative approach that I look at when it comes to uh, making decisions. You know, I direct operations. So at the hospital, first step. So that means I oversee the IT department. I oversee maintenance, uh, building and grounds. I also oversee the housekeeping, the cleanliness. I manage a lot of our contracts that we make as a hospital um, and the overall expenses of the business, as well as um, our recovery housing, as well as our marketing and our community outreach. So it's pretty dynamic and diverse what it is that an operations director does. And mm-hmm. I couldn't be more grateful to be in that position because it gives me the ability to take what it is that I have passion for um, and create an atmosphere of recovery, not just in detox and not just in supportive housing and residential or in intensive outpatient care, which I just took you from here earlier. Mm-hmm. Um but also extending that level of care to probably the missing link in the recovery continuum. Um, With that backdrop of knowledge, I'd like to spend a minute now talking about what advice you might give to families that are looking for recovery facilities for a loved one. When you say recovery facilities, you mean a detox and treatment center? Yep. Okay. Um, I think there's a couple of accreditations, either JCO or CARF, um, and their acronyms, and basically that's what accredits um, a hospital so that they can accept private insurance, but it also puts them through the gauntlet mm-hmm. um, of basically person-centered care. And that means that it's less about we've sized you up, we've weighed and measured you, and this is, your, this is what we've spit out to you as a direction to go. Um, person-centered care lets the person be part of it. And I've gone through some treatment not just for addiction, but also for cancer. And I think it's good to have a coach, but I want to be part of that. And I think having that puts some skin in the game for me. I get some control. And as a person in early recovery or without recovery, um, as we can all know by knowing anyone in that stage, is we want to have some part in this. We want to have some control. We got to show some humility to take some suggestions, but we got to have we got to be able to weigh in our our feel on that. And I think that has a lot to do with the type of treatment center that you come to. Now let's talk about some of the uh, something that's really getting big now is medication assisted treatment. Okay. And facilities. Yeah. And um, you know, Suboxone has had mixed results. Methadone has been around for years and years, also mm-hmm. mixed results. Sure. But Vivitrol has just come on the scene Mm -hmm. um, in the last year or so, uh, and the results have been really good. So far? So what would you, um, how would you comment? Would that exclude someone that wanted to go on Vivitrol? They couldn't be participate in your program? No, we do administer Vivitrol. Okay. We do not administer methadone or suboxone. Um, We will if the counselor and the the medical professionals here um, feel like it's a good fit. uh, We will administer Vivitrol. But here's the deal. There's a lot of paths to recovery. So if my path wouldn't have included methadone to failure, if my path wouldn't have included Suboxone to failure, to where I had to prove it to myself that it wasn't going to work. What I learned in the program is that... um, I can't use a medication to cure my ailment. I can't use a drug to fix a drug problem. So the dependency that's related to that, and if something happens to that flow of drug, I'm 
still facing withdrawal. I'm still facing early recovery um, and all that that includes. Does it help clean up somebody's lifestyle so they stop getting charges possibly? If they're able to be a parent, if they're able to go to work, absolutely. It can. Um, will it last? I don't know. My drugs changed on me at some point long term. I don't know how that works. But we're new into the Vivitrol. We're semi-new, you know, a decade or two into Suboxone, not even mm -hmm. that. Um, so we're going to have to play this out and see how it works. But I can tell you this. Um, I feel that as an addict, I'm going to have to exhaust all of my ideas as far as what may or may not work for me. So if if I'm insistent that I'm going to be on Suboxone or I'm going to try this Vivitrol because I know three dudes who it's working for and they're nine months clean. So I, it will work for me too. Um, I don't discourage that. I don't, I shouldn't have any say in that. That's between them and their sponsor or them and their counselor. Uh, and if that's the path they're on, then let them be on that because it's a safer space than them out shooting dope. Okay. And the 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 only piece of open-mindedness I'd ask for is that we say, let's see if this is part of the path to what I feel in my own personal experience is abstinence-based 12-step. We were talking about the other things that families need to know when they're evaluating, you know, treatment as well as recovery housing. Well, from a treatment standpoint, um, I think having some involvement um, as the family member and taking the suggestions, we're asking the addict, the alcoholic, to come in and be willing, come in, be open-minded, come in and be honest, not just honest with those around us, but honest with ourselves. And what, what we find oftentimes is the family member needs to do the same. And the family member tends to come in and say, well, if Jimmy would just get his stuff together, if he would just do this program, if he would just take these suggestions, he'd be fine. And if he's fine, we're fine. Well, the problem is, is, is as sick as Jimmy is, means as sick as the rest of his family is. Yeah, it's a family disease. And so it's a denial in that part. So there's a process for them. So they're going to have suggestions to be made. And if they are not willing then they may, they may limit Jimmy's potential. Let's talk about your recovery housing, the facilities that you run here. Well, we've got about 40 beds. We've got three houses. Um, we run a social model, which means that the houses are run by the peers. We oversee the administration of these houses and support them. Um, but the houses are run by, as you met, one of our house managers, both of our house managers, two of the three. Um, and it's a social model, meaning it's a family environment. They make decisions together. They basically are the house managers. Um, we set up a basic general guidelines with some zero tolerance policies in some cases. Um, and we support them through administration and recovery mentoring because the way that I want these houses to run and is the way that I was taught to have these houses to run by the high recovery housing. Um, alliance, which follows national standards of uh, NAR, which is National Association of Recovery Residences, um, which is, I want these houses to be in a be in a space to where they can function as people in early recovery um, and follow certain guidelines, and um, those have been set forth by folks before me, and we essentially want to have recovery or program answers 
to everyday problems. In other words, when I got clean and started working steps, and when these guys get clean and start working steps and they're outside of treatment and they can go places, of course, there's a two-week blackout period where they have to go accompanied by a senior peer for their two weeks in housing, uh, meaning they don't just get out and get to go. Um, they get out and they get their peers to go with them because what I can tell you is that there's something that sits in the center of my brain that even going in a certain direction or down a certain street, getting in a car and starting it and driving, there's something that lights up in my brain that says, feed me drugs because I haven't lived through that experience without using either in a long time or since I was a child. Um, so we have to relearn how to feel out here. We have the, to say that I was fragile coming into early recovery doesn't even begin to explain it. Okay. Um, to say that I'm oversensitive in early recovery and long-term recovery doesn't even begin to explain it. Doesn't mean that I'm so much different than any other human out there. It just means that I haven't coped. I, I have never or for a long time experienced life without using drugs. So I've got no coping skills. I am completely vulnerable to impulse. And so we put people with people. But the therapeutic value of one addict helping another is without parallel. There is a place while they're in treat when they're when they're in treatment that they need more structure. As they come here, that begins to transition into just a little bit less structure than treatment. And also there's not counselors and uh counselor aides around sort of directing me and supervising me. There's less. So that's a very vulnerable time. How do you keep them on track? Do you monitor? <sighs> we hold each other accountable. How? Well, I remember being early in recovery and having uh, people ask me to help them, like asking me to sponsor them when I had 90 days and I completely lost my mind and I called my sponsor and he says, if you're one step ahead of them, you can help them. Who are you to not help another suffering addict? I'm like, dude, I got 17 days clean. Are you kidding me? I've got nothing to offer. And he said, who can more closely identify with a person than a person that's got a few more days or a few more weeks than him? And then I thought about it. You know, who did I identify closely with? The guy sitting there with 20 years, carrying on for a long time, keeping things simple that I was glad he was here, but I was frustrated that he was still here because I was so self-centered thinking, well, that I'm not going to be here at 20 years. Why is he here? Why does he still need this? I couldn't identify with him, but I could identify with the dude who just came out of withdrawal and was starting to feel better. Yeah, I really liked that. And the fact that he took this seriously... That was a lot for me. There were some guys about 10 years younger than me in my home group that I picked within my first week clean that I couldn't believe. These are guys that I would hang with using. And it was such an impression. You knew them in your using never. days? No, I never oh, knew oh, them. Oh, but in my mind, as I'm oh, watching okay. them talk, yeah. I'm thinking, I, I would have hung out with these guys mm -hmm. using. And, and listen to how they're talking, the gratitude they have for their recovery. And I hear parts of their story. They have so much in common with me back then in the using, and they aren't using today, and they're okay with that. Boy, the respect that I have for that it was just immense. Yeah. So I was able to connect to them, and I was able to tell them some of the things and the ways that I think, and they would laugh in identification. That's the beauty of, of recovery housing. So you came clean with them. You really opened your soul with them a little bit. I, I you, cried you, through almost every meeting every time I opened my mouth, and I still do when I talk about my recovery because the gratitude that I have from it, the value that I place on it, I wish I didn't have to have a program. I never wanted a program, and I successfully avoided it till almost 40 years old. But when I walked in that room and they read those readings and they talked about the therapeutic value of one addict helping another, that one is too many and a thousand's never enough.
those things, man, it was like I'd never heard that language before. One is too many and a thousand's not enough. It's never enough. Mm-hmm. Um, an addict can identify. Yeah. And it's important to identify. Um, so these guys get a chance to experience life, go through their problems, and have people around them to support them with recovery solutions. Other things as far as accountability are, is concerned, is there drug testing? Of course. Regularly and often. Okay. So okay. what's regularly? Regularly is uh, uh, like twice a week here at the houses. They're mm-hmm. also, though, the ones up to their first two to three months are in aftercare or IOP, intensive outpatient. So there they're getting tested at a lab twice a week, minimum, unless there's suspicion or reason otherwise. Let's let's take do a timeline for how long in detox, et cetera, okay. and their whole transition. Sure. And, and then we want to talk about, you know, continuum of care okay. that you offer. So let's start there at the beginning, detox. Somebody comes into detox, they're a patient, and they will um, be a patient for up to seven days in detox. Once they complete detox and are transferred to supportive housing, uh, which is a residential where they're staying right next door and they're going to group and they get a different counselor because they have a counselor in detox, they will get a new counselor in supportive housing. And that's unique to have a counselor in detox, isn't it? Well, I've seen it done other ways, um, but it does seem that we are pretty assertive with getting them engaged right off the bat. Okay. Uh, so, yes, they have a counselor. Uh, they get an assessment, not only medically, but uh, clinically. And then they um, will have group, in de- in literally in detox, with other detox folks. Yeah. Do you go back to their, you know, many of these uh, people have gone through multiple attempts to get clean, to go into treatment. Correct. So they've been in treatment elsewhere. Yeah. So do you go back and get the records from the last treatment facility or the one before that? Or is there is there any discussion back and forth on where they are with their other treatments? I think that's interesting that you bring that up because, no, there is no collaboration between the treatment centers, which I think is probably less than ideal. At least in my experience. Now, I wouldn't say that there aren't that, that doesn't happen in some cases, but it's not our experience. That was um, in kind of my journey here. Uh, I shared Sam's case with uh, and all of his records with a few treatment providers, and um, one of them in particular made a point of saying that he was very surprised that there was no linkage between the first and second. Sam went to two treatment providers, that there wasn't any linkage between the two because in assessment that would have been very beneficial because he was he did some things that were a success in his first program. So he accomplished something. So um, rather than forgetting about that entirely and disregarding that, um, you should build on that. But they didn't do that. Well, I'm sitting here with my mind racing thinking, what a brilliant idea. I'm sure it's been thought of. I'm not sure of what why the state is what it is, but it's certainly something that I want to discuss with our leadership committee here to see, all right, that, that topic has to have come up. What was the discussion? And revisit it. As a parent, we treated um, relapse as failure. But you know what? It's not. Because they took that step. They said, I want to address this. I want to make a change here, and I'm willing to go into treatment. That's that. They're saying that they want to climb a mountain. And so regardless of how far 
up that mountain, they made it before they stumbled and they relapsed. Yeah. They made some progress. I think that's part of the journey. And, and I see guys regularly, daily, coming back from what we call a relapse. And in some cases, they didn't have recovery, so it's not necessarily a relapse. Um, and in some cases, it's absolutely a relapse the way we look at it, which is you had some recovery and then you went back out. But we have to pr- – I always talk about it, man. When I see that look on their face, and I've seen it a million times, when they look at me with that shame like, oh, man, Ted, I'm sorry, man. I, you know, I, I, I was doing good and, and this happened and that happened. And I'm like – I cut right to the chase on them. I'm like, dude, let that go. This yeah. becomes now part of your story. You had to prove some stuff to yourself like – you know, whatever you weren't willing to do last time, maybe get with your sponsor, get with your counselor and figure out what you weren't willing to do last time and make the adjustment. That's all this is. Build on it. Yeah, that is part of this process. Yeah. We all get here different, man. Mm-hmm. And we got to quit looking at it as better or worse. It's different. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So we we're talking about the supportive housing. And how long? Up to three weeks. Three weeks. Okay. Um, so a total of about 30 days, which is a traditional standard treatment. I okay. Correct. And then once you leave there, then you either are discharged to a safe place or you're discharged to three-quarter housing um, or you're discharged home, whatever your situation is. And, and the counselor works pretty closely with them on identifying what they're willing to do or what they decide to do. This is so overpowering and such a difficult uh, addiction, heroin addiction is so difficult to overcome that, um, you know, a year or more into the program is the planning horizon that I've been told you have to be looking at if you want to have success. Can you put that in perspective or comment on that? Well, I'm not sure. I can tell you that when you when you talk about it having a trigger that, that causes a feeling of withdrawal um, or jonesing, you know, fiending again, um, I you know, I experienced that for at least, uh, you know, and in some cases still find a similar response in extreme situations where I'll have an emotional response um, to something that's happening for me. And I always talk about it as the giant big hole in my stomach that opens up and that sick feeling where I'll have a physical response based upon emotional reaction. Um, And it happened regular and heavy in early recovery um, where I could be feeling just fine, but something doesn't go my way. And Physically, I feel like I'm in withdrawal again, and that's a pretty—it's a pretty vulnerable state to be in because you know when we as addicts or I as an addict feel uncomfortable in any way with a coping mechanism of over 25 years of how to treat that, and now not having that available to me and having to use the tools of the 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 program, which aren't instant and aren't awesome in any way, they don't instantly fix everything. It takes the edge off so I can survive it without using. Um, so an addict that's uncomfortable is in a desperate place and it can happen instantly with news, bad news, good news, or no news. Um, and it's important to, that's why the support is so important and having a program to where when we get uncomfortable, we are willing to call somebody and tell on it. Because without it, and we think, well, I got three months clean, I can handle that, or I got three years clean, or I got 30 years clean, I should be able to handle that. That's ego. And that's not having a program. We got to be willing to tell on ourselves because when we share it, we expose it, it's lessened. And then we find ourselves on the other side of that situation going, thank God that I got through that and didn't pick up. So, what are the most important things that family members need to know in how to support? 
their loved one going through this? Well, I think one is for me, I can only tell you my own experience in this, but I think for one, when I came out of treatment, I bought a drug screen, an instant cup, and I gave it to my 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 significant other and told my mother that here it is. It cost me 60 bucks because I got the full panel and I bought it at a Rite Aid, so it was really expensive. I said, so I can't do this every day, but if you feel uncomfortable, I want you to hold me accountable and ask me to pee. And if I won't, it's because I don't want to waste the money. Um, that was one thing. I, I volunteered myself to be accountable. So it showed them, I guess, that I was willing to be accountable. I was I was taking it serious. And you gave them a role also. I gave them a role. I gave them some control. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the other part was my sponsor, who I who I asked to be my sponsor when I was a week clean, is still my sponsor. Wow, and, and we've developed a relationship, and he got a chance to meet them. And he actually sat down with us a couple times early on and helped her and I establish some boundaries. And she came with me to my meetings. And we, as a family and his family, um, spent a lot of time together um, early on and while he was taking me in. And so they got a chance to understand what it's like to be an addict and what to look for. Um, and, and also an open line to my sponsor. Wow. So haven't heard of this before. So you introduced your sponsor to the family and he was able to work with them to establish boundaries. What kind of boundaries for you? Well, for example, she was real fearful of the people that I was associated to for my whole life. Um, coming into recovery, having enough common sense to know if I spent my time around them that I was going to use again. There was a situation when I was 30 days clean where one of my friends said, dude, I want out too. I want to go to these meetings. I mean, I can't believe you haven't used, so I want to go. And she lost her mind. She's like, he's going to ruin it for everyone. And my sponsor was able to set up a scenario where we were able to help a suffering addict. He was able to help me go through this. And it was something as simple as, as long as they don't see each other in person by themselves, if they're going to talk on the phone, will he let you be around while you're talking? And if we're going to take him to a meeting, then he drove from Youngstown to my house to go pick this guy up and to come to Warren way out of his way so that he and I weren't coming together the way we'd driven that same track before together because the same result would have happened together. So, wow, you talked through a detailed plan in that particular yeah. case. But it and was simple. So it was kind of a negotiated plan also with your, with your mom mm-hmm. and your sponsor. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's great. So we worked through. And so when he called me, I would call my sponsor. Mm. And then I would call him back. Or if he texted me, I would call him back. And, and, but I'd, I'd figure out how to talk to him because I was afraid of it. But I wasn't going to not help. I love the guy still. Well, the other friend of mine is now passed. And so I've had to sit there at the funeral and watch his daughter face what I feared I would face for my daughter. Just for today, that's not my story. Yeah. So this this thing, I had to survive it. And I still have to survive it. And I don't do it alone. And I got to have some humility to think I'm a grown man. And that's what we get a lot in recovery housing and early recovery. We get like, I'm a grown man. I know how to live life. I know how to work. I know how to have relationships. I can do this. I just need to stop using and get a job and I'll be straight. Well, that's kind of arrogant or ignorant. Okay. In recovery, that's not how this works. Having the humility to say, 
I'm not sure how to have a conversation with these friends. I feel mixed because he gave me something as simple as saying, because when I was sitting there in early recovery going, listen, dude, these are my friends. Okay. I understand I can't be around them, but I'm not going to for like come turn into this cult and say, I, I'm dismissing these guys from my life forever. He said, do you need to see them today? And I'm like, no. He says, okay, so we're not going to see them today. Right? Yeah. It's that simple. When you decide to see him, will you give me a call first? Yeah. There's the fix. Yeah. That's what that's what it took. And I would see them from time to time. And normally it's when one of our other friends, um, when one of our other friends ODs, we get together. But my sponsor knows we're getting together. Yeah. You know. You've got clear, um, unambiguous ground rules there. Yeah, and I have to be willing to submit to myself to that. That's the humility. That I'm not above it. I'm not above it with seven and a half years. I'm not above it with 30 years. My sponsor's got almost 30 years now, and he ain't above it. And he taught me. What else can we teach families about how to support their loved ones going through this? I guess um, we support them by holding them accountable. We support them by not judging them. Um, as, as you've shared, uh, relapse is maybe part of their journey. Um, we support them by getting support for ourselves. The therapeutic value of one, say, addict's loved one to another is without parallel. Now, I didn't word that right, but that's how I feel. I feel that if you want to support an addict, you need to understand what your condition is how you've gotten sick from this potentially uh, and being willing to look at that. So um, that would be organizations like Al-Anon? Correct. Or Naranon. Or Naranon. Yeah. Okay. Um, or Families Anonymous. You know, there's, there's a lot of different splits of these organizations out there. There's lots of community organizations. But essentially finding people you can identify with and realizing, one, you're not alone. Two, when, how do you talk to your addict when he's purely manipulating you with 30 days clean or three years clean? Um, because he's still, you're still codependent and you're not helping him because he can't get independent from you because you won't allow it because somehow or another you're, you're addicted to him and you need his dependence on you. And that's what your addiction is. And I say that directly to folks and, and I alienate myself oftentimes because I'm not that guy. I'm not the parent of an addict yet so i can't identify and when we're in pain and we're emotionally attached to something we look for ways to disqualify ourselves from needing help and i think if we want to support that addict then we've got to be willing to go through the discomfort that they we're asking them to go through any final thoughts ted before we wrap this up i really want to thank you for i feel like today you've uh you've bared your your soul and um, I, I hope, well, actually, I hope and pray, but deep down I know this is going to help some of our audience. Well, I appreciate that. I, can, I guess I just have a thought of um, breaking that cycle that I grew up being asked to do and having, being completely ill-equipped of what was ahead of, of how to do it. But I got to tell you, with about four years clean, I had a birthday, and I got a text from my sister 
And there was a time in my life where she was in my face screaming and the image will never go away. And she says, what the F is wrong with you? And this is a girl who never showed this kind of rage to me. And I didn't have answers. I didn't have words. And I had about four years or so clean, three or four years. And on my birthday, she said, you are the best father. And that my daughter is so lucky to have you as a father and what you've done to address your demons. And she said, you broke the cycle, Teddy. And all I could say, think of to myself was, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. But just for today, I have. It's not over. Everything's still yet. And that's the program, and that's the beauty of the program. There are tons of addicts recovering from this addiction. There are tons, hundreds of thousands of addicts in recovery that are valid miracles. So for me to have my little win every day and have a daughter who's 12, who, I can, who I've been to every father-daughter dance, every softball game, I coached her, I can tell her I can be there Tuesday, and she absolutely knows I'll be there. And I couldn't be more grateful to be there and be present, to suit up and show up. And God gave me that ability. And so I'm humbled by it. And I try to share it. And I don't get to decide who gets my message. And I don't get to decide who I get my message from. This is the gift that I get today. And I couldn't imagine being in a better place and being more lucky. I had to participate in that solution, but I'm not the solution. That's all I got. Well, thank you so much, Ted. I, we really appreciate that. I know our listeners are going to appreciate that. We've been listening today with and talking with Ted St. John, who's the Director of Operations of First Step Recovery in Warren, Ohio. Once again, Ted, thank you. This is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you know someone who is struggling with addiction, please share this with them. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources, and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.